Truth is, any speaker who gets up in front of you lot is almost by definition bound to be a little bit scared. It's just, you know, you're a fearsome bunch. And I have to be, furthermore, I have to be a tad intimidated by the fact that our, one of our guest speakers, uh, who's going to be doing, as I mentioned, the Bible readings, Rich, is one of my favorite, if not the favorite Bible, my bi- favorite Bible teacher, and he's sitting just a few feet away from him. So if I, you'll understand, if I stumble or stutter, you will forgive me and be comforted by the fact that there is indeed a precedent. Uh, do you remember the story, uh, true story, of John Wimber visiting a newly planted vineyard in the United States? Do you know this story? Um, he turned up one Sunday morning, unexpected and unannounced, and simply sat in the back row. But I suppose, inevitably, the, his presence there made the young pastor you know, somewhat nervous. However... All went swimmingly throughout the service and the sermon, and the pastor was reaching the end of his sermon, somewhat relieved by the stage, and was just coming into land on his excellent talk on Ephesians chapter 6. As you all know, uh, he, he expounded it, and he read verse 16 for the very last time, and then he added with a flourish, he said, and if you don't remember anything else about this sermon, at least remember this. To take the shield of faith with which you can quench all the diary farts of the evil one. (laughs) Perfectly true. Last year, if you were here, you'll remember, you may not, but uh, I did three of the morning Bible studies on one Timothy. And we actually, we never got to chapter 6 properly. So um, let's go there now. Truth is, I can't stay away from 1 Timothy. And we've entitled this talk, Four Focal Points for Visionary Leaders. Because as you will have seen from all the blurb, that's our theme this week, visionary leadership. And um, we're, Ella and I are planning to teach it together. So let's read 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll begin with verse 11. 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. But you, man, and for our purposes, woman, man of God, woman of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, 
the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. And then jump to verse 20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. We wanted to talk about four focal points for visionary leaders, constantly to be kept in our sights. And the first one is to clarify the vision that God has given us. Those words of Paul to Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. God has entrusted us with his calling, his vision for this movement and for us as part of it. And we are engaged upon a fantastic thing. Make no mistake, and when nobody is deluded, it is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. But we have been called to something very special. We are the vineyard, and we are a called people. We are also a commissioned people, commissioned to walk with God all the days of our life, humbly and righteously representing him in the land. And we are a community of people called and commissioned to do this together. I read a verse the other day which I've been loving ever since. God is present in the company of the righteous. Here we are, righteous men and women of God, and God is present in our company. We are the vineyard, and the vineyard does have a vision. And that vision is to exalt God across these precious islands of ours in our generation. And we are intent upon doing it quite simply by preaching the gospel and planting churches. That's who we are, that's what we do, and that's what we've been called to. And we are commanded, no less, by Paul, to guard what has been entrusted to our care, because he has entrusted us with this fabulous vision. And as we gather here again this evening, a year on from the last time, I am, as I was then, quite overwhelmed at who we are, at what the Lord has done with us up to this point, and with the thought that all he has yet in store for us. We've hardly even started. And you may have heard all this before, but this vineyard thing began with 25 years ago with a young family in a borrowed front room with a Bible and an omnicord and a vision. Our first ever, what we like to call, leaders' conference, there were 22 of us. Bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, in a borrowed lounge, and 25 years later, here we are, over 1,000 of us here this evening. We have over 110 churches and church plants. We are determined to double the movement by 2020. It's part of what the vision is that we think God has given us. Referendums may come and go. UKIP may rise and fall. Europe, we may be in it and we may be out of it. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And it needs to be preached in the land. The kingdom of God is advancing and his church is on the move. And we are a part of that vision. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. So what has come to pass over the last 25 years, and we've talked about it before, is totally wonderful, but we have only just started. I sometimes see us in sort of athletic mode, which is not usually my way, but in starting blocks. Great race, great track in front of us. We are in the blocks and we're ready to roll. 
Wimber told us 25 years ago that he believed that in this country of ours, there were thousands and thousands of people wanting to sing a new song and march to the beat of a different drum. We are people on a mission from God in our generation. We are singing the song. We are beating the drum. There is a world to win. And as the vineyard, we are called and commissioned to preach the gospel and to plant churches and to exalt the Lord in the land. So for ourselves as leaders, it's not illegitimate. In fact, it's perfectly reasonable to use last year's achievements as a springboard for next year's ambitions. Just now and again, given that we recognize full well that this really is to date the Lord's doing, and that if he doesn't go with us from this point, we might as well be dead in the water, which is a slightly vernacular way or a loose translation of Moses' more beautifully nuanced words. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. We cannot lift a finger. We cannot do a thing. We cannot save a soul. We cannot plant a church. We cannot heal a body. We cannot drive out a demon if the Lord goes not with us. And we know that to be true. So over the past year, we have grown. Last year, there were a thousand of us in this place together. This year, there are many more, and we are bursting at the seams, which is a happy problem or a logistical nightmare if you happen to be on the team here. Our statistic gathering, and note that the Bible is very big on statistics. Numbers, statistics, and keeping a record of such things is a biblical pattern. And our numbers tell us that the movement in this country has grown by 25% during the course of the last year. Now, that is extraordinary. Either you are at last telling us the truth, or we're getting better at counting, or just possibly the Lord has grown this movement remarkably over the course of the last 12 months. And we are looking to grow more. The Bible is full of reaping and sowing and planting and watering. It talks of increase. Jesus taught about mustard seeds and sowers and talents given out to be invested, looking for a yield. We were never called to stay small. We were always called to grow, to increase, to expand, to advance, to possess the land. So we've grown. We have planted we now have somewhere between 110 and 120 churches. It keeps moving depending on who you ask. But I wish to be conservative and I don't want to be struck down for exaggerating. However, across the UK and Ireland, though you'll hear more about it later in the week, the hubs where we are training our leaders, this time last year there were three of them. As I speak, there are seven. Nearly 300 people are attending and getting biblically, theologically, rigorously trained at this moment. At a local level, you know, I heard of one house group in one church recently which sent out its seventh plant out of its own house group. Now, I call that increase. I call it growth. It represents serious breeding. We're talking rabbits. I mean, it is amazing what these people are doing. Talk about sowing and reaping. We have expanded. We had well over 500 young people at a cause to live for this year. You'll hear more about that. People who wanted to know how they could sell out for Jesus and live their lives for him. 125 came together to talk as emerging leaders, seriously, seriously planning to lay down their lives in the cause of the gospel in this country. 450 young teenagers at DTI 
fresh-faced, bushy-tailed, zealous, excited as could be. Ministry to our children is burgeoning on a week-in and week-out basis. 24 songwriters went and closeted themselves away, as only songwriters can, on a retreat in a farmhouse, writing songs together. And we hear that there was a wonderful sense of unity and not a shred of competitiveness in sight. Over a hundred songs have been submitted as possibilities for a new album to be recorded or whatever later this year. Songwriting is starting again. Songs are being created. Music is coming forth from the churches. Signs of life and of growth and of expansion. The first ever youth worship school has been totally sold out coming up in February. And unsurprisingly, given the economic climate in which we find ourselves at the moment, the vineyard's reach has um, extended quite remarkably in the areas of compassion ministry and in all sorts of ways. Many of our churches have organized food banks on an unprecedented scale. And being the vineyard, they're ready to offer so much more than just invaluable, generous, sensitive kindness, bag, groceries, furniture, clothes, and so forth, but a sense of dignity and of friendship and of compassion and of concern and of prayer ministry. Do you know, I heard of one relatively small church on the edge of London, quite small, that has connected over the course of the last year with 600 people through their ministry to mummies and children. 230 teenage mothers have been connected with. 800 contacts with the homeless in a single year. One little church. And the beauty about this compassion stuff, the beauty of it is, it's on our doorstep. We can all do it. You don't have to be a big church. You don't have to have your own building. You don't have to be all bells and whistles and things and bobs. You can just be a small church with a large heart collecting the groceries, looking for the poor, caring for the broken, giving people the dignity that God would have them to enjoy. It's amazing. It's amazing. There are things happening in our neighborhoods and among our neighbors, and we need always to call ourselves back to this vision. This is what God has called us to do, transform our communities, affect our neighborhoods. People don't follow vision. They follow people with vision. They don't just want a vague, airy, fairy vision. They want to follow you, who are the leaders in the movement and are captured by a vision. And you need to be captured, and then you need constantly to be clarifying it for the people in your churches, reminding them of who we are and what we're for, reminding them that we're called to exalt the Lord, constantly affirming Jesus, constantly affirming him, constantly talking about him, constantly gossiping the gospel over the garden fence. Last night, one of the things that was remarkable when the Archbishop of Canterbury talked with us, he said to us, affirm Jesus, talk about Jesus. I mean, he talked Jesus all the time. And one of the challenges he laid down, which I thought was remarkable, was that every single one of us in this room ought to be able, at the drop of a hat, to explain the way of salvation to somebody who asked. A neighbor comes and says, what does it mean? How can I become a a Christian? Could you do that? Could you tell them? In words of one syllable, in the case of what, two minutes, three minutes, and lead them to Jesus? That's what we need to be able to do. Gossip the gospel and lead people to Jesus. It means constantly repeating and explaining why we're doing what we're doing. And it means also repeatedly telling our stories. We thrive on stories. We flower on encouragement. Our hearts are always warmed. Our nerve is always steadied. 
because that's how we're wired. We love a good story. And before I stop this bit, I want to um, tell you the story of my next door neighbor. We'll show you a little clip in a moment. We live across the fence from a lovely family. They are a married couple. He's a lawyer. And they have four small children, all under 11. Uh, three and a half, nearly four years, four years ago in February, the fourth child was born. He was severely, severely incapacitated, disabled. He is blind. He is sensorily deprived. He is never to walk or talk. He has fled through a tube in his tummy. He's four. He is completely um, supine. He just has to be held all the time so he has physical contact. When he was born, actually on our James's wedding day, so I remember it well. When he was born, I felt the Lord said to me, I want you to go in and just pray for them. Week in and week out. So I've been going in regularly and she and I have become the closest of friends. She has come to Jesus And a year or two ago, they asked John and me to baptize all their children in the back garden. They turned the bottom of the garden into a little chapel, because they knew no better. And we had a little cloth and candles, and everything was out there. I mean, it was hilarious. And we baptized them. And John did a gospel talk in, what, one and a half minutes? I mean, it was masterly, I have to say. And (laughs) it was. It was absolutely brilliant. And um, I had them all for tea. I had them all for tea and I explained that Jesus was knocking at the door of number 14 and we talked about, behold, I stand at the door knock. I mean, it was just amazing. Anyway, cutting a long story short, I went round a week or two ago to pray for this little fellow. He was lying in his mother's arms and still just like ever. And I prayed for him. I had a text. An hour later, he started to walk. And I want to show you the picture that his mummy sent me on her mobile phone. And the whizzy people up there are now going to show you this little video. There he is. Now watch him. Watch him. This child has never walked. He has to hold on because, of course, he's blind. And I had a message. I asked her whether I might tell you about him. And I had a message yesterday to say that he'd come back from his little place where he goes and he'd walked unaided for the first time. And why I tell you his story is because I love him very dearly and God has put him on my heart. But he lives over the fence. You don't have to go somewhere for your life to count. There is holy work to be done right where you are. I didn't have to go on a ministry trip. I didn't have to cross the seas. I just had to hang over my fence and gossip the gospel. And that's why I love the story. The first focal point, clarify the vision. Here's the second focal point for you visionary leaders, or as our Nordic friends would say, visionary leaders. Chapter, develop personal godliness. Develop personal godliness. Clarify the vision and develop personal godliness. Chapter 6 and verse 11. But you, man of God or woman of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Pursue godliness. Righteousness um, pursue righteousness. Righteousness in the sense of um, the word there means uprightness in conduct. And godliness having to do with one's relationship with God. So in effect, 
Well, Paul is saying to Timothy, both on the horizontal, as it were, the vertical plane and the horizontal plane. Your attitude with the Lord and uh, uh, with, his, with the world around you. An emphasis on observable conduct. When we need to, we need to keep calling each other back to personal holiness. Your own walk with God and with the people who he has put in your life in all spheres and mine too. Proverbs 3 verse 7, fear God and shun evil. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace. Incidentally, that verse, I had an elderly aunt who doesn't, um, who for over 40 years was a Baptist missionary in Kenya in East Africa. And she used to Pray that prayer, 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, every day for both our boys as they were growing up. And since, um, since I've, uh, we were here together last time, we've had, as Eleanor was saying, we've had some wonderful high points. Wonderful high points. And we've heard just some of them. And as well, there have been heartaches and heartbreaks. And uh, for me personally, I mean, just from a personal point of view, um, uh, for a variety of reasons in the last six months, um, we, I've, had, I've faced difficulties. Uh, there have been one or two pastoral situations with um, churches in different parts of the country where we and the air leaders and so on have had to intervene because of behavior that was just not up to you know, biblical standards. And um, my colleagues, both area leaders and the leadership group, have dealt with it, and I think we've, we've dealt with it as biblically as we know how and as gently and kindly and compassionately know how. But one of the things that sometimes happens is that the whole thing spins in another in direction, and suddenly the issue, the, the issue that you've been addressing is sort of lost in the fog of war, and, and that's not the issue. You suddenly become the issue. How dare you intervene? How dare you blah, 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 all this sort of stuff. And it's, if, you're, if you've been leading for more than 20 minutes, you'll have discovered something like that. John Stott's one, I remember him saying, asking rhetorically, you, if, do you want to cultivate humility in your life? Well, he said, embrace situations that involve personal humiliation. <laughs> you know, the emails start flying in these sorts of situations, and uh, you discover to your amazement that you have allegedly done all sorts of awful things. Do you see, and uh, I was telling, I was talking to the Nordic leaders earlier on today, um, for me, one of the things, just in my own desire to be more godly in these very difficult and painful situations, um, I remember, I was telling them, years ago at Anaheim, we did, Ellen and I did one of the, the marriage enrichment courses led by a fellow called Sam Thompson, and I remember him talking about the cycle, which I'd never seen before, of hurt, anger, revenge. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's, you, you get hurt by somebody, and we live in a crowded world, so hurt leads to anger, you're, you know, you're natural enough. That's the way we're designed. It's the way God made us. Anger is perfectly appropriate. What happens then, however, is that hurt becomes into anger. Anger comes into revenge. And you think, well, how can I get even? And you begin to concoct all sorts of juicy ways of getting even and getting revenge. And for my, I think that to break the cycle, hurt, anger, Daily forgiveness uh, causes a different sort of response. To rep and, and, and just to check, 
each day that this person who sent me this rather unpleasant email, I, I found it really helpful to check, Lord, am I, have I, if I need to forgive them again, I'll do so now. And I would do that over the series of several days until all the sort of heat sort of um, dissipated. And part of this thing of godliness and personal godliness is when circumstances are difficult, you, 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 you are basically faced with a choice. Are you, and you've heard this many times, are you going to get bitter or are you going to get better? And um, there are people in this room, in, in this very room tonight, who in the last 12 months have every reason to be bitter, to be bitter. But they're not. <laughs> Now, there's one couple here who've had significant difficulties. They lead a church, and they've had significant difficulties with the leadership in their church. I'm not, you know, you don't need to go into the rights or wrong, but they've got every reason to be better. There's somebody else here who um, requires major surgery for a, a long-term condition that has deteriorated significantly. They'd have every reason for being bitter. God, why haven't you healed me? There's someone else here whose family member very recently committed suicide. Just heartbreaking. And again, every reason to be bitter, but they're not. Well, yet another friend who had to undergo radical surgery, radical surgery for cancer, and in the middle of the subsequent um, 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 treat, uh, chemotherapy treatment, uh, her, uh, her beloved father died. So she was dealing both with recovery from cancer and bereavement. And is she bitter? Not a bit of it. She's better. No, no, better. They're developing personal godliness. Four focal points. Clarify the vision. Develop personal godliness. And thirdly, stand your ground. Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith or what Tom Wright calls, fight the noble fight of faith. It is a high thing that we are called to, but it is a battle. And we are, as visionary leaders, required to stand our ground. It is incumbent upon us to stand our ground, to stick to our guns, to hold our nerve, to quote Kipling, to keep our heads when all around are losing theirs. That's what leaders have to do. Christians have always been required to hold a line, to swim against the stream, often at a great personal cost. I think that's partly why in the seminar streams and things that we do here this week, we sometimes try and address some of these big ethical issues, some of these big moral issues, some of these big issues that are rolling in the country at the moment. There is a heavier, bigger, more severe threat to our country at the moment through the redefinition of marriage than people can begin to imagine. The government is oblivious to the significance of what they are about to do. It's terrifying. And we as Christians have to hold our line and stand our ground. Christianity is not a popularity contest. It never has been. It often more feels, as someone said, more like volunteering to be ugly. Someone said to me the other day, we were watching the BBC News together, and they said to me, I feel increasingly like an alien. We are aliens. It was never promised that we would be anything else. But we need to stand our ground and to hold our nerve, because that's what visionary leaders do. 
One or two of you have mentioned that with the current prominence given to this government's plan to redefine marriage, that the whole issue of human sexuality and the nature of marriage in society, etc., etc., is being highlighted, which of course it is. Only last week, John and Neil were rigorously grilled, yes, grilled, by someone about the Southwest London Vineyard's attitude to the gay issue. Just one example. Many of you will have encountered the same. It's all around us, and we are under pressure to explain that, no, we're not homophobic. No, we don't hate gay people. Of course we don't. To ask questions or to suggest a position or to refer to biblical truth, that's not homophobic. You can't do anything without being told that you are. And yes, we are inclusive and compassionate and kind and empathetic and our doors are open and we are not judgmental. But we cannot compromise on what we believe or on what the scriptures plainly teach or on what we are called to guard. So we stand our ground, we stick to our guns, and we stay on message. More broadly, it is for leaders to keep their eyes on the ball. It is for us to take responsibility. The the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Pretty deep. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. It's tempting sometimes to run off after new things. And by all means, we want to remain open to what God is doing and what the Spirit is saying, but it's still true for us in the vineyard. Old orders is good orders. Until God changes the orders, we stick to the orders. We are people who've been given a vision, been given a charge, and it is for us to guard what has been entrusted to us. We are the vineyard, and we have been called by God to preach the gospel and to plant churches. We are mandated to preach the good news to the poor to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to set at liberty those that are oppressed. We need to hold that calling and to stay on message. Talking of praying for people and healing and wonderful things, I have one other little story. May I give you? It makes it longer, but it's a great story. My daughter-in-law. I now have two daughters. Oh, it's such a wonderful thing. I can't tell you how much fun. We're into nails and clothes and shoes and John doesn't know what's hit him and it's so much fun. I have these two marvelous daughters-in-law and um, one of them had a friend who was expecting a child. She'd been waiting for this baby now. They've been longing for a baby for I think eight or nine years. No baby had ever started to materialize. About um, eight months ago, a baby was on the way. Huge excitement and rejoicing. They belonged to another church, and, um, which isn't part of the story, actually. It wouldn't matter, but however, they do. So, uh, however, it turned out the first time they had a scan that everything conceivable was wrong with this baby, who was immediately dismissed as a fetus. Every time they went to the doctor, they were offered a termination. The medical people went on and on and on. This child is not viable. This child will not live. This child is deformed. This child will never breathe. This child will be born dead, and you need to get ready for it, or let's do a termination. There are all these different ways that we could bring this to pass. 
For six months this went on. They were being scanned in all the time. It was hideous. There was no joy. There was no gratitude. There was nothing but misery. And so my darling Holly said to me, look, Daly, this is not a good thing. So we went together. We got two other girls from, from their church, and we went together, the four of us, to pray for the couple. And I was, I was really mad. I was mad that this girl who had prayed for a miracle and had been given a miracle had been ripped off by medical people who knew no better and told her to prepare to bury a dead child. Abort a fetus or bury your dead child, they said. We were so incensed, so we, we went to it with a will. We prayed for her. The baby was born three weeks ago. Perfect breathing. He's gone home. Perfectly well. Perfectly well. You know, this is, this is for us to do. This is what we've been mandated to do. Stick your ground, people. Stick your ground. Don't listen to what they say. Don't buy what you're told. Stand your ground. Hold your nerve. Pray for the sick. Do the stuff that we were mandated to do. And now and again, God gives us a miracle. And a baby exists who was never even supposed to see the light of day. Marvelous things. And I've lost my place. I <laughs> Do you think that's an, and you've kicked over the water? Oh my, what a mess. <laughs> I don't know where I am. There are one or two things I'm supposed to be saying to you. One of the things that we did think to say to you, while we're pursuing our vision and while we're doing these things and while we're trying to plant our churches and build our movement, John and I have discovered recently, certainly within this last year, to beware of the sand ballots. You will, of course, all of you know that that's from part of the story of Nehemiah. You all look totally blank, I have to say. <laughs> We're supposed to be a biblical movement, and Rich Nathan is supposed to be impressed. And we all immediately say, San Ballot, who's he? <laughs> the story of Nehemiah, a visionary leader, if ever there was one, intent upon building the walls of Jerusalem. San Ballot was a rogue and a villain of the first order. He mocked and taunted Nehemiah mercilessly, doing all he could to distress the Jews and to divert them from their task. And back came Nehemiah's resounding reply. This is the reply of the visionary leader. Write it down. I am carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? It's a great truth. Things will come to distract you. Some downright evil and easily spotted. Others rather subtle and hard to find. But they come and they're sent by the enemy of our souls to divert us from the great project upon which the Lord has engaged us. We will be mocked. We will be belittled. But we are carrying on a great project and we will not leave the wall. And the last thing I would say, as we try to stand our ground... We need to stay connected with each other. We need to stay connected to the movement. In her farewell speech to Parliament in 1601, Queen Elizabeth said this, To be a king and to wear a crown is a thing more glorious to them that see it than it is pleasant to them that bear it. People think it's a big deal to be a leader. It's hard. Leadership is hard. It can be stinking hard. Read Paul if you are unpersuaded by Queen Elizabeth. It can be isolating and often it is lonely. And isolated people get distracted and discouraged very quickly. 
We're doing this thing together. We are journeying together. We're people on a pilgrimage together. We're on a mission from God together to build the church and see the kingdom come. And we need each other. Oh, how we need each other. And that's why we love being together like this. This is heaven on earth. Because we are together in God's company and in the company of one another. So I do say keep your eye on the rest of the movement. Not just this week. It's part of the big picture. And we're engaged on something that is much, much bigger than any of us. You may be beavering away on your patch, laboring away in your corner of the whatever, harvest field, I suppose. And it serves you well now and again to lift up your eyes and to see how much is going on beyond you. There's much more going on than you know. Don't get isolated. Because when people get isolated, they get hurt or offended. They get put out. They get aggrieved. And people do. And when they do that, the first thing they do is to withdraw. They pull back. And I've seen it over and over and over again. And people do not flourish. And it is never good. You will never prosper by pulling back and isolating Because it is then that you need your brothers and sisters. And we are a highly relational people. We are brothers and sisters engaged in this thing. I love this, my new definition of a friendship. A friend, and we are all among friends. There are many friends in this room. You need your friends and you need to make new ones. Because a friend is someone who knows the song in your heart and sings it back to you. When you have forgotten how it goes. That's what we do for one another. And that's how we stand our ground together. What time did we start? Oh, Oh, that. No, that's all right. You can't see the clock, can you? No, I can't see. I never look at it. Of course you can't. (laughs) Fourth and final focal point for visionary leaders. Explain the mystery or explain the mysteries of life to your people. Explain the mysteries of life to your people. This, unashamedly, this is a phrase I pinched long ago from John Wimber. He often used to say it. Explain the mysteries of life. And by that he meant explain to your people the big picture, as Eleanor started off with her first point. Explain to people how life works. Then there's a level of reality that Christianity provides that lots of other belief systems don't. And I include in that atheism. Explain to people how your life will be better and continues to be better when you follow Jesus as opposed to when you don't. We're growing up in Jesus together. We're on a journey, as Ellen was saying. We're doing it together in the company of God's uh, family, our brothers and sisters. Uh, verses, if you've got Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy open, verses um, uh, halfway through verse 12, take hold of eternal life. It doesn't just say take hold of life, which of course we do, but it, take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And then he goes on in verse, thir- verse 13. In the sight of God, he gives life to everything, in the sight of Jesus Christ, who testifies before Pilate, I charge you. 
I charge you. So there is for us this evening a charge. I love this thought of um, God uh, seeing us. In verse 13, in the sight of God. Uh, I just love it. Uh, I, above my desk in my study at home, I've got a piece of Sunderland. It's an antique piece of Sunderland plate. It should be worth a fortune. It's not because it's got a huge crack down the middle and was glued together. So it's not worth very much. But it just says on it, Thou, God, seest me. And I love the idea as we, we do our work day in, day out. Just a reminder that at uh, this point, I, in the sight of God, and of Jesus Christ. We walk in the sight, in the plain sight of God. Doesn't, doesn't miss a thing. Doesn't miss a trick. Take hold of eternal life. Uh, in vineyard speak, that's thoroughly eschatological, isn't it? Of course eternal life begins now, but we're also to take hold of the life that is to come. And, of course, his, one of his contrasts is the false teachers in Ephesus who were wanting it all now. Uh, somewhere I've got here a wonderful quote from Gordon Fee in his commentary. Paul instructs Timothy that he is to continue the contest until it consummates in the triumphant conclusion. A little light alliteration for you. Fee goes on. But as is usual in such texts, there is an inherent tension between the already and the not yet. And that's the, the, the point I want to draw your attention to finally uh, this evening. That we live in this, it's a question of perspective. We live in the tension of the now and the life that we seize now. But the context is so much broader and so much bigger and so much more exciting. In fact, so much so <laughs> that you'll notice that Paul starts to wax rather lyrical. And he seems to go off on a tangent here. I charge you, he says, in the sight of God, I charge you leaders, vision leaders, I charge you to take this seriously. Uh, and to, com to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he has a fixed point in history in mind that's approaching. And then off he goes, which God will bring about in his own time. That's the fixed point. God, off he goes, God be blessed. The blessed and only ruler, the, the king of kings and the lord of lords who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable life, whose no one has, can see or has ever seen. To him be glory and honor. He's deliberately using, again writing to the church in Ephesus via Timothy, he's deliberately using culturally relevant terms because they were plagued by this business of having to worship the emperor who used to describe himself in these sorts of terms. So Paul is deliberately sort of poking a finger in their eye of the pagans and saying, well, I'll tell you about the king, never mind your emperor. I'm talking about the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's the one under whose gaze we, we do what we're called to do and take hold of eternal life. Paul extols 
um, God's mighty power and transcendence in this thing we technically call a doxology. No matter what opposition Timothy meets, no matter what kind of pressures he faces, Paul extols the true God, the only blessed sovereign, the king who rules over all kings and emperors, the Lord who is over all would-be lords, the one who possesses immortality, the only one who is unapproachable and separated from people to whom belongs glory and honor, glory and honor and power forever. This is the God whom Timothy serves. Um, Peterson's language in the message. He says, his light is so bright, no one can get close. He's never been seen by human eyes. Human eyes simply couldn't take it in. They couldn't process such spectacular things. It's stunning. This, the, the brightness of the lights is so stunning. It's so awesome. It's so fabulous. It's so dazzling as he talks about the great God whom we serve. And you see, here's my main point. That when we talk about vision, vision always begins with a vision of God. Even before it's a vision of the task we're to do, all of which is important. But vision begins with a vision of God. You see it in Isaiah, you remember chapter 6. Before he was commissioned, he had a wonderful vision of God and his holiness and his purity. Do you know, as Ellen was saying, we've seen some fantastic things this past year. We've had some difficult things for, for a whole variety of reasons. And, and you, you, you know what it's like. You know what it's like. There are, it's, it, it's, it's not at all unusual or at all unnatural from time to time to want to give up. It's not unheard of. For me, at three in the morning, have you noticed how the demons come out about 2.45 a.m.? Have you noticed that? They, they seem to work to an alarm clock. Do you know, and you think, is it all worth it? What, what am I doing this for? It's just too hard. It's too difficult. And do you know, um, just with some of the tricky things, not least uh, two friends have been diagnosed recently with potentially life-threatening illnesses, and then we're just mourning the death of a third person. Just in the last, um, what, I think, three weeks ago, yesterday, he died suddenly. And you think, what is, you know, is it... And do you know what has been such a blessing to me? And do you know what's not only kept me going, but sort of, I feel like I've been born again, all over again, again. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what it is? It has been looking at this whole thing of the... Of, of eternal life, what we enjoy now pales into insignificance with what we're going to enjoy one day. And I sometimes think, I sometimes think in the vineyard, we, we press so hard on the task that God has called us to, and that's absolutely right. And we, in that sense, we press on the now. But we need at the same time to keep the perspective of the not yet. And that there's a continuity to this eternal life thing which has begun now and goes on into glory for eternity. Let me finish with these wonderful words from one of the commentators. Even someone, he says, of this passage, even someone who bears the title at the beginning of it, 
man of God or woman of God, even someone who bears the title needs encouragement, he says, and needs to be called to persevere. The role of one's own spiritual heritage is essential to the day-to-day labors of ministry, a reminder not only of one's prior commitments, but of the God who witnesses one's actions and ultimately will prove victorious. Our spiritual life, listen to this, our spiritual life and our ministry are intricately interwoven, and you see it in this passage. And to address one is to deal with the other. Someday, when the sovereign God deems it appropriate, Jesus Christ will return. This God is a mighty God who is in absolute control, and to him alone belongs true honor and might. He will be victorious, and it's implied here, will vanquish all his foes. Believers must live in the here and now, the already, with the conviction that eventually the enemy will be vanquished in the not yet. Those who have persevered will receive their reward.